Okay, tonight, Psalm 22, we are going to look at verses 11 through 18. 11 through 18. It says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Wow, what a passage this is. Dear Lord, as we spend some time in your word here, in this passage particularly, we've read it and we realize it's a rather dark and difficult section of scripture. And yet it's probably one of the uh, most accurate ways of expressing a kind of pain that we do not know, but our Savior does. So help us here tonight as we spend time in this passage to see once again the depth of your love for us and what you endured on our behalf. And draw us close to yourself as we just sang, keep us near that cross so we can see where we can watch, where we can wait. Just work in our hearts tonight, Lord. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful evening. And we have this opportunity to spend time looking at our Savior. And I pray that you just challenge us with this text. In Jesus' name, amen. I like to think that uh, this title could be Man's Trouble and Travail. But I also thought maybe it should be the bulls, the lions, and dogs. Oh my. Because we have quite a list of characters in this scene that are not happy people. Especially these animals that we're going to be talking about. What you might call a very bad day is described in the book of Amos. There is a, a picture of a man. Now God is describing judgment that he's bringing upon Israel and and how they're not going to get away. And he says, it's kind of like this man who's running from a lion. And he comes around the corner and a bear meets him. And he eventually makes it home and leans against the wall and gets bitten by a snake. Would you call that a bad day? (laughs) Amos describes it that way in chapter 5, verse 19. We as, as human beings, we, we know the concept of fear. We talk about fear and we talk about phobias and such like that. There was somebody who said this, and this is somewhat of a trivia time for you. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. I should ask you what year, too. No, before that even. 33. 33. His first inaugural address, 
he used these words. Now, what he was concerned about, what the fear was in his day, was finances. They were going through the depression and such like that. And so it was an issue of money and, and how are we going to make this work. Now, actually, he quoted that from somebody else who had written uh, nearly 300 years before Francis Bacon wrote those words. And FDR used them that day. And so they were hoping that uh, they might be able to work their way out of the depression. And that was the, the slogan that he used there. Uh, we only the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. If we go through a catalog of fears, uh, claustrophobia, arachnophobia, I hate that one too. This is one my son actually says around the house every now and then, and I don't even know if I could pronounce it well. Hippopotamontrosequipedalophobia. It's about this long, and it's the fear of big words. And he uses that around the house. He could just rattle it off when he says it, too. Now, for us, perhaps our greatest fears are things that hurt or things that take life. And that's natural. We, our bodies are designed with, with a, a system within us that, that uh, breaks into fright or flight. The nature of, of uh, getting away from danger when we look at this passage, uh, a picture of our Savior's crucifixion, there is trouble all over these words. He says, as he does in verse number 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. There's a couple of words especially that we just read. Verse 16, They pierced my hands and my feet. And again in verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You can't get a more accurate statement concerning the crucifixion in the Old Testament. And that's rather interesting because crucifixion was not used at the time of the writing of this psalm. It was a, it was a torture device that the Romans liked to use. And that would come much later in history. But nevertheless, what a, a statement that is. Now, we wouldn't call our Savior afraid. We wouldn't say he had some sort of phobia, obviously. But did he know what he was going to endure on that cross? If you go over to Matthew 26 for a minute, leave your, your bookmark here. But Matthew 26 and verse 38 We've done this a lot in our study of this psalm to go into books like Matthew. Matthew quotes quite a bit from the Old Testament. But in Matthew 26, verse 38, we have another scene of Jesus there in the garden. And in verse 38, he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He's talking to his disciples, of course. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Has that ever caught your attention why he asked what he did? Let this cup pass for me. It was part of the plan, wasn't it? That this crucifixion take place, that Jesus give his life for, for us. And, and I could only picture it this way, as best I could put my, my mind around this. Uh, God in his infinite wisdom explored, searched out every single avenue that could be there for salvation. The only solution for sin is death. Remember what he said very, at the very beginning. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Ezekiel also says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Romans tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And yet, all the way through, it seems like, oh, I only wish there was a different route. How many times do we wish that? But there was only one way. And really, there's only one truth in this. And there's only one path to life. And it's only possible through Jesus Christ and his death. And I think it's entirely human to seek an alternative to pain and death. Especially when he knew what it would be. He knew what it would be. One author I read years ago pondered this thought. What did Jesus think when he used nails in the carpenter shop? David's experience, we go back to it here in Psalm 22. We look at David's experience here because we see these two things going side by side. He gives a description of his enemies here. He calls them bulls. Strong bulls. From the territory of Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan River and just a little bit uh, north probably more likely on the side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a pasture land. It was great for cattle. And they were known, according to one writer, that uh, the bulls of Bashan were known for their size, for their strength, even for their fierceness. And so they were used here to represent men who were fierce and savage and violent. And yet these bulls, he talks about strong bulls, had big mouths. Because the very next phrase he says, they open wide their mouth at me. You know, he was a shepherd. David was. He killed bears, lions. Yet, it was a bull he used to describe his enemy. Isn't that interesting? A bull. The fury of the way of a bull. Bears and lions tear, and that's, that's one thing to fear anyway, but bulls trample. He didn't have one bull that concerned him. See the plural? Many, many. 
maybe concentrating on one, you know how to escape it, but there's a herd of them, he says. And they're all directing their anger toward him. That's his first description. The second one he adds in verse number 16 has to do with dogs. Dogs have surrounded me. We're not talking about poodles here. All right? Look at the kind of description again. These dogs, as, as they were, they weren't pets. Wild dogs in a pack. It's plural again. Now, in the Old Testament, they use the concept of a dog once in a while for the picture of a pagan Gentile. Animals. They feast on blood. There's a terrible story, absolutely disgusting story about Jezebel and the dogs. The way her life ended. Just a disgusting scene in the scripture. I'm not even going to bring it up. Forgot I did. Um... Dogs. Here he says, in comparison, Hebrew poetry does this all the time. He mentions the dogs surround me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. He equates the two. His enemies are like wild dogs. They surround him. So his enemies are fierce, loud, angry, They seek to trample him, they seek to feast upon him, and they only intend evil. Only intend evil. And their final act, in verse 18, to divide his garments. That's the last act toward a victim. I mean, what else is left? He won't be needing these anymore, right? I could almost picture the dogs after they tore him up just grabbing the, the garments and running with him. A piece here and a piece there and such like that. David's description here is that he's not going to survive this. He's, gotta, he's kind of projecting his thoughts. Be near me, Lord, he says. Be near me. I'm surrounded and they're going to tear me to pieces and carry off my clothing when they're done. This is David's reflection on himself. And is he ready for such a fight? Verse 14. I am poured out like water. Does that sound like somebody ready? No. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Pottery. You set it out in the heat and maybe in the sun or maybe in an oven in order to make it, it dries it out. It says, that's what I am. My tongue cleaves to my jaw. And then here's this phrase in verse 15. Look at it. See if it, if it catches you like it caught me. And you lay me in the dust of death. Who's he talking to? The dogs? The bulls? No. He's talking to his Lord. He's talking to his God. And I don't think he's saying this in a statement of surprise as much as he's stating it as, you know, none of this happens to me unless it comes from you. You lay me 
in the dust of death. You. I, that struck me when I read that. I, I, I'm careful to watch for pronouns. I try to teach my students that to, at the school. I say, watch for the pronouns. They're, they make a difference in studying scripture. And I'm scanning through there and I'm saying these animals and these animals and all these around. And all of a sudden he says, and you lay me in the dust of death. There's only one that he's speaking to. That's God. This word for lay me. If I go to the, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, use the word katego, which means to intensely, intentionally lead to this. This is deliberate. This is to bring something down intentionally. That's a word he uses as, as the Greek translated it from the Hebrew. They said, this is a path you have led me down. It's your plan that I die, is what David is saying here. It sounds hopeless, doesn't it? It sounds hopeless. But it's an interesting thing, because just in the very next psalm, David writes something, and you know the next psalm, Psalm 23. He, he's describing his shepherd, and he says in verse number 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then he also says this in verse 3, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now that, that little phrase there has always been a significantly important verse to me. God leads in the right path all the time. That's what it says. Based on his own name's sake, based on his character, and because he's holy and right and just, it's the only path he takes you through. The right one. I know many times we're on the path, and we say, Lord, I think we took the wrong turn here somewhere. It, it just doesn't seem right that, that this should be along the path. Usually we do that when we go through difficulties. We say, no, that can't be right, Lord. That, that can't be right. But the Lord only leads on the right path. Now, that gives me some comfort. Even when I don't understand why this is happening, or that's happening, or, or why I'm walking through this challenge, I can stop and say, but the Lord only leads on the right path. And if I'm here, and if He's brought me here, then it's right. Even though it doesn't feel right, it is right. I think that's a, 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 a sound theological perspective David is expressing not just in Psalm 23 but even here in Psalm 22 when he says you lay me in the dust of death he realized it came right back to God and what God chose to do it may not be our choice but you know what it's still the right one if God's brought us here you can see the wrestling of a soul, can't you, here? It's like, but Lord, really, there's other ways to take me out of here than these dogs and these bulls. 
you know, we, we all have a preference, don't we? Usually it's softer, maybe. I, I have a friend who, who would not fly because he says, the Bible says, Lo, I am with you always. And he always joked about that. But, he, you know, we, we, we joke about things of that nature. And, and yet this is David's expression. God has laid me here. Hmm. Verse 17. So what's David do? He looks out and he says, I could count all my bones. And they, dogs, bulls, they stare at me. You wonder what's in their mind. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner. They stare at me. What's his request? If we just work with these verses, he asks one thing. And it's not, get me out of here. I want you to notice it. Verse 11, where he started. Be not far from me, he says. That's different, isn't it? He's not asking for the escape route. He doesn't want to be alone. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Now we go back to his original phrase, verse number one. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He emphasizes that again somewhere around verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. You are my help. Hasten to my assistance. But here in verse 11, as he's looking out at the trouble, the travail that's so evident, he says, don't be far from me. Don't be far from me. This word is the idea of distant, removed, so far away. And what, a, what a lonely, fearful cry, even a panic at this moment. Help. Almost, that sounds like the word that should come along with it. There's none to help. There's none to help. Now that's David's experience here, and he is probably being chased by King Saul. There were instances in his life when he thought, well, this is it. This is it. He's got me surrounded. On several occasions, David thought that was just about as far as he can go. Let's go to Jesus' experience and insert the word anguish again here. The description of the enemies, the same scene of bulls, verse 12. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bulls with big mouths. Verse number 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. How do you like a bull with the sound of a lion? Wow. Dogs have surrounded me. Verse number 16 adds here. I've told you I've been working my way through this and enjoying Spurgeon's commentary as I go. His comments here, many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. The mighty ones in the crowds 
are here marked by the tearful eye of their victim. The priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, rulers, and captains bellow round at the cross like wild cattle, fed in the fat and solitary pastures of Bashan. Full of strength and fury, they stamped and foamed around the innocent one and longed to gore him to death with their cruelties. Conceive this Lord Jesus as a helpless one, unarmed, and cast into the middle of a herd of infuriated wild bulls. They were brutal as bulls, many and strong, and the rejected one was all alone and bound to a tree. Their final act, they divide his garments. Last act toward the victim. He won't be needing these anymore. Dogs, in the previous picture, carried off the clothing. We often say, He gave up everything for us, right? We say that. We, we talk about the time he, he left His throne in heaven. We, we speak of uh, His garments being taken from Him here. He had nothing left. Nothing left. Sometimes, you know, as we reach the end of someone's life, there's something to divide up for the relatives and for those who are still here. Nothing. Even the clothing were taken. We say he gave us his all, and that's true, isn't it? Nothing. Even his tomb was borrowed. I like that word borrowed, don't you? It was a borrowed tomb. He didn't have to buy one. He just used one for a few days. But this passage is so sobering, isn't it? I couldn't help but get over this thought as I was putting this together. How we have collected things. And we have a lot of things. We collect things. We, we like comfort. We... We even waste moments that were given to us. And in light of his sacrifice, I thought the other day how foolish it really must be that we, we focus on things. When I reflect on what Jesus did for me and what he's done for us, it says in verse 14, I am poured out like water. Poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Can you picture a cross? These words are being said. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength, it's dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And then here's that phrase again. And you... Lay me in the dust of death. You. Who intentionally, intensely, deliberately led him to the cross? If he's following the same tone as David, 
He's speaking to his father. This is the path you had me go down. This is the cup you had me drink. It is your plan that I die. And I die in this way. Isaiah 53, I've read it with you many times, but let's go back over that beautiful passage. Isaiah 53, and let's read it in light of God's deliberate, intense, intentional plan that Jesus should die. Watch the words as you read this. Seeing a sovereign God lead our Savior to this place. Isaiah starts to write, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But, watch the words. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with a wicked man, with wicked men. And yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Then here it is again. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Does that strike you? The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The words in this passage speak of our sins crushing him, our father crushing him, And then, this last phrase we just saw, but he poured himself out. 
as well. Perfect unity in all three thoughts. What we have done, we're mindful of and we feel shame. But this is also what the Father did and what the Son was willing to have done. This picture is incredible. But as I read it in Isaiah or in Psalm 22, these words, You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus knew full, uh, full well it's God's deliberate crushing of Christ. I can count all my bones, he says. They look, they stare at me. So what's his request? If we follow the same scene, verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. What a lonesome plea that is. He said, You have forsaken me, my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? Now, verse 19 is going to repeat that plea again, but there will be an element of trust. I kind of picture that we're at the very darkest point in this psalm, and it does start to look better on the other side. <laughs> but as we're walking through here, we, 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 we don't end with a note that has that, that uh, element of, of hope or trust. Actually, to leave with verse number 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The day is done. Kind of leaves us quiet, doesn't it? To think if that was the very end of it. Almost like it's we hold our breath and hope for something more, don't we? That it just can't end right there. Can't end right there. It's a pastor's uh, desire and intent when preparing a message that there's a resolution at the end. <laughs> that we're bringing it around to some point that everyone goes out with a smile on their face. That we've resolved the problem. Kind of like the 1970 sitcoms. There's always a trouble and then they always solve it and send everyone away from the show thinking, okay, everything's okay now. But here's a sermon that leaves you hanging. D.L. Moody had preached a sermon, and uh, at the end of his message, he, he led the audience up to a place of decision, and he said, I want you to go home and think about your need for Christ. And next week, we'll talk about that. And in the distance, the fire bells started to ring. Chicago burned down. And according to his biography, most of those people he never saw again. And he resolved in his heart, I will never leave a sermon undone. That's what he resolved from that. I will never leave a sermon undone. There's always got to come to a place where there would be an invitation well, I'm going to leave you an invitation, but a different sort. I'm going to leave you before a cross tonight.
just standing there, staring, as these others were doing. There's a demand, a demand to look. 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 Not a glance. Not some brief recognition of what he had done. Not not that simple acceptance of, well, this was accomplished for me, and I know the outcome, so I'm just going to, you know, get on with my week. But he says, they stare at me. Verse 17. And I think there might be a need for us sometimes to stop and just stare. Our stare is a little different though, isn't it? And I don't want to stare in some academic way, like counting nails or splinters or thorns or something of that nature. But to stop and look, to be still for a change. As he says in Psalms, be still and know that I am God. For the next three or four days, as we prepare for Good Friday, and again entering into this passage, I'm going to leave you staring at a cross, thinking about what he's done. Thinking about what he's done. And I think it would be a good exercise for us that we spend some time staring there. So I challenge you to do that. Spend your time in this passage this week. Just muse upon the words. Try to fathom what he has done. And when we come back again, we're going to pick up and start to see the hope. The hope that builds. And it's a beautiful thing. But Heavenly Father, these words, they're, they're really really, really touching. And here we are, in our own minds, perhaps, just looking at a scene that was caused by our own sin, that was brought about by our Savior in the deliberate plan of God that He should die for us. And Lord, we use the words so carelessly at times. We, we use the, the theme so carelessly. We use the theology so carelessly. We just mention it in the midst of something or we just speed through it to the time of an Easter service. We're so eager to get to the other side of the cross that we forget to stand and look. As we sang, Jesus, keep me near the cross. I pray that you might uh, work in our hearts this week. Show us again the depth of your love for us as we look, not in a careless way, but in a careful way, at what Jesus has done. And we give you the glory. We must, but we do. We want to give you the glory for what you have done. Your word says so clearly that God has so highly exalted him, lifted him in above every name that is to be named, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, 
heaven, earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have knees and we have tongues. And I pray that they're quick to acknowledge Jesus Christ is our Lord. Challenge us with this passage, I pray, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.